Welcome to this week's Monday meeting. Today's March 18th, 2019. Monday meetings are a chance for motion designers all over the world to connect and ask questions, share inspiration, or hear presentations and interact with industry-leading artists on an equal playing field. Today's topic is negotiation and etiquette within the motion design and animation industry. Uh, there's been a lot of chatter about this recently on all different slacks and Twitters and all that good stuff. So this seemed to be a good topic and it was suggested to us uh, in the BroGraph Slack um, by uh, Steve Dunnington and uh, Phil Roberts, Raid Zero. Um, so we thought it was a great topic to kind of tackle with a lot of different people within our industry that join these meetings. So it should be great. A um, few things before we start, if you have any, um, if you have a question, you can raise your hand uh, via the new raise your hand function on Zoom. Uh, you can access that through the manage participants, I believe, or participants uh, button. Um, you could also just, type question in the chat so we can monitor the chat and field them properly. It's essentially raising your hand. Uh, if you have any comments or questions that seem to be spammy, we'll just mute you. So, yep. Uh, and as usual, this call will be recorded. And if you have any concerns about something that was said that might be under NDA or you might just be a little cautious about, uh, let us know and we can uh, edit that out of the final recording. A uh, couple other things. We have our Discord server. Um, I'll drop the link in the chat right now. Uh, sorry. There we go. Uh, and we have a weekly newsletter that we've been sending out. Liam's really been tackling that. It's been great. Uh, a lot of cool links from throughout the week. There's a lot of newsletters out there, but uh, this one seems to be a, a nice weekly wrap-up on Fridays. So, uh, One last thing, too, is there's going to be a bunch of us at NAB, um, and Liam and I have kind of discussed whether we do like a meetup or kind of a, a live Monday meeting or whatnot. Um, Monday morning is the morning right after the big kind of – motion graphic meetup with school of motion and all the other sponsors. So that might be a rough morning for a few of us, uh, depending on how you send it that night. So we'll see. Uh, but if you're interested in doing it, uh, or interested in meeting up with a bunch of us, uh, let us know via uh, Twitter or Instagram, or you could shoot us a email at info at mondaymeeting.org. Anyway, uh, a lot of us will be there. So, regardless if we do anything official or not, uh, we will all see you there and hang out. So with that being said, uh, let's jump into the main discussion about negotiation and etiquette within the motion design animation industry. And I think just to kind of set a, a little bit more of a broad topic there too, I would say like negotiation could be negotiating rates, uh, negotiating project files, negotiating, you know, uh, holds or whatnot. Um, and then that might funnel into kind of etiquette and how you handle that stuff. So um, I don't know. Uh, I think 
Let me see. Steve, it looks like you're on the call today. Would you want to hop on and, and join in and kind of talk about why you uh, thought this might be a good topic? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah. Um, so I think it was in the podcast with um, Noseman. Was it last week? I can't remember. Two weeks yep. ago, maybe. Um, he mentioned it. And uh, yeah, no, I think that speaks to me a bit. But I think from my point of view, um, I've kind of been uh, freelancing for probably about 10, 10 years. Or, no, not 10 years, probably eight years. Um, and I've, I've kind of been chasing like the next job all the time. And I've always been kind of, I guess, worried that I won't get the job or whatever. But then I kind of got a bit burnt out last year. And as a result, I don't really give a shit if I get work or not this year. <laughs> um, just because I've wanted to do more of like personal work. Um, and I think that's actually been quite good for negotiation just because I'm not really desperate for it anymore. Um, so that's kind of the change that I've had. Um, but I know that's not obviously easy for everybody um, if you're desperate for work. But um, in my case, I wasn't. So it's been quite a good way of um, just not being fearful of not getting the work. Um, where I was before. So, not have that you been, Pardon? Uh, I was just going to say, have you been able to negotiate uh, like better projects, higher paying projects, less projects, therefore, you know? Um, well, I mean, I used to do more 2D um, and I started kind of jumping on learning all the 3D stuff. So it's probably more recently that I've actually started getting 3D work. Um, so I'm trying to kind of stop doing 2D work just because there's an influx of so many younger people getting into it, um, charging less and less um, and expecting the work even quicker. And um, usually if I'm doing direct work, I can sometimes, you know, get two or three months to work on the project. Um, whereas if it's through an agency, it always seems to be um, next week, <laughs> always. Um, so it's a little bit easier to kind of, I guess, bump up the price um, just because you've got that extra wiggle room. Whereas uh, I find it's a bit more difficult to justify higher prices if they know well, I've got a job actually at the moment that I need to deliver, I think by the 2nd of April and it probably, if I was charging my day rate every day, it would be quite cheap. Um, so I'm almost having to like double my day rate to kind of get it to a price where it's actually like worth the hassle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. And so, since it's you said it's through an agency or a studio. Oh uh, yeah, studio. Okay, yeah, I, so. I, I I did a lot of work for this particular studio last year, which was the one that burnt me out. So, okay. <laughs> in, nice. in some ways, I'm uh, I don't want work from them, but at the yeah. same time, then I mean, it's usually doing work for like you know the big big brands, basically. Not that the work is necessarily good. It's just the fact that the, the names that they work with are pretty big. Right. So. It looks good when you're putting all your logos on the website, but <laughs> apart from that, it's not very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of that comes back to, uh, to stuff that like Barton Dammers talked about before is like, you know, if you start getting to that point where you're like burning out and you're burning yeah. the candle on both ends, raise your rates, right? So yeah, you know, I think there's, just that, there's that kind of price point there where people are looking for people at like 350 rate or something. So mm -hmm. if you're already charging a little bit over that, you, you're effectively not going to get any work. So, um, but then yeah, how, if you're doing how direct you work, that? Fine. Um, well, I haven't raised my rates for years and years and years, like even with inflation, um, mainly, I guess, because of that fear thing that I said, um, but then I was just getting too much work and I don't, I mean, I live not like in a big city or anything, so 
I don't really have um, huge expenses. Um, I've got a re relatively small mortgage and already in the family home and stuff. So I don't, I don't really need that much money. Mm -hmm. um, so I think just by not, by being financially stable, I think it's kind of made it just a lot easier to just take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. um, and oh, and one other thing, um, because I've started thinking more about um, valuing my own time to do personal work, um, I, if I don't get a job, um, then I just get to spend more time on my own stuff. So that's kind of like an incentive not to get the job. Um, so a lot of the time, I, I usually when I get an email saying, oh, can you quote for this work? My, I usually am upset. <laughs> now I know I'm going to be busy for the next few weeks. <laughs> um, so it's kind of a nice way to kind of flip it on the other side. Um, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, maybe I don't know. Is that the same for everybody else? Or? Yeah, what is... Anybody else? I mean, so you live kind of in a farther remote area. I'd be curious to see. Yeah, I live in, like I, if, I'm, I'm from like, originally from like near London, but um, uh, I've moved to like North Wales, which is like really cheap mm -hmm. um, near the mountains. And, you know, there's not really a lot of big businesses here. But then because I'm working remotely from home all the time, like I never work internally in a studio or anything. But I tend to just get the project um, from, I guess, concept and then finish it and then, you know, send it across at the end. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't really matter where I live, um, as long as I've got some contacts that know that I exist. Sure. Yeah, what, uh, I, I'd be curious to hear anyone else that might be living in cities or whatnot that are, are going in and like working on site um, at certain studios or, or whatnot, like in terms of setting your day rate or negotiating holds or whatnot, I would be curious to hear anyone's experience with that. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to see who might be kicking around in the. Yeah, Dan, if you're if you're around, I know you're you're in New York, correct? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're a little low. Cool. All right, I'll just talk. Is that better? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. So I live in New York. I went freelance six months ago, and uh, I was freelance before that for years. But my primary clients were all agents, uh, agencies and working on site and just agencies you can charge a better day rate so i was kind of like oh i'm making a lot more money sure i'll go in and i'm working a lot longer than anything else but uh after a while i got burned out so starting in february i just i'm only taking remote jobs even for those same clients but I built up a reputation with them so they can trust me and they know that I'm only charging for the time that I'm working. So, I mean, I may be only getting a few hours of work a day, but at a hundred dollars an hour, like for doing a half days of work. And now I still have like the whole rest of my day. I didn't waste time commuting, like commuting into the city for me from Brooklyn can be like, two hours round trip sometimes. So after the burnout, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm staying home from now on. <laughs> and like, if I don't get work, that's fine. Like I worked my ass off for a few months. Like I've got the money set aside and that's why you do freelance and you charge more than you think you're really worth so that you can afford to take that time off when you are burnt out and you can work on your own projects. Mm -hmm. So I've really only been working with like one agency the last two months, just part time, but it's been enough to keep me afloat. 
and it's someone that I have a long rapport with. So I can be real with them and be like, uh, I only got a couple hours today or like, uh, do you really need this now? Can I get to it tomorrow? So it's, I'm really only taking flexible work right now for my own sanity. But um, going into the office and like being on site freelance and like work for hire, you get really burnt out. I, I def definitely, uh, it, it's good when you're young and you haven't really made a lot of connections yet in the industry, like if you're new to a city. So all of my new clients, they definitely want me to start out on site. So I get that, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's been my experience. I'm really curious to hear other people in cities and how they deal with working on site. Did you have to negotiate with that client uh, to work remotely? And did that kind of happen after building that on-site relationship? Yeah, a little bit at first. Um, I kind of phrased it and I saw in the Slack someone else uh, had this, like they would book me for like a month at a time. And, you know, there were days where they just didn't have anything for me to do. And I would literally was sitting in the in their office, did 10 minutes of work, and then just sat there for eight hours, like screwing around. And that's kind of like when I had this aha moment where I was like, I would so much rather be home, only charge for like that one hour of work, but then have the whole rest of the day to myself. So mm -hmm. I kind of pitched it to them like, look, there's a lot of time that like, you're just kind of wasting. So why don't you save my time and save some money for like a future project down the road for me? But like, why don't I start working remotely and only charging you the hours that I'm working? Um, and that was also allowing me to like double and triple book myself sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, like there were days when I had like a 16, 18 hour day in February, but I was working for two or three clients and I was, you know, making, money for every hour of that so it was it was worth it but then other days in the week it was only two or three hours and i could relax sure so that's interesting that you would charge them hourly and not just half day rate or full day rate yeah so the way i balance that is um so now when they want me to work on site i will ask for more money um so like, we'll just say like, if you want me on site, I'm gonna charge you a thousand dollars. If you want me for the full day remote, I'll work for $900. Mm -hmm. But if you don't think you need me for the whole day, we can either do a half day or we can do by hour, but there's no guarantee that I'm gonna get to you immediately. Mm -hmm. So if, if, as long as they're understanding about that, like there hasn't really seemed to have been any issues. Cool. And that's worked out for you, obviously. You're happy with the situation you're in. Yeah, no, it's been great. Nice. Does anyone else have uh, kind of experience with, with that? I see who is in the chat. Uh, Matt, have you worked on site? Yes. Yeah, lots of times. I hate it. It's the worst thing ever. You've actually done some recently, right? You've been doing some stuff on site recently? Yeah, I did some back in December. Okay. 
you know, and the, the problem is like, I mean, Dave and I are running a business, you know, Mm -hmm. a good majority we're based in Dallas, but a good majority of our clients are not in Dallas. You know, I would say 90% of our clients are not in Dallas. So most of the work that we're doing is remote. Mm -hmm. Well, this particular client just so happened to be in Dallas and they're like, we'd love for you to come in. I was like, all right. So the big thing with that was that uh, it, what I, I try and stress as much as possible to not have me come in mm-hmm. because the same thing, it's the same thing that Dan said where, you know, you, you just sit around. I literally would sit around and you guys were paying, they were paying a lot of money just for us to, just for me to sit around. And you always feel like when I'm working at one of those places, when I'm working on site, I don't like to, I don't like to run my business, you know, on the side while I'm doing stuff. Sure. That's, that's the hardest thing is, you know, as a doing it as a freelancer, as a business, you've got to take emails, you've got to take calls and stuff like that. And working inside a place, it makes it that much harder. Mm-hmm. And know. that's part of the etiquette portion of this discussion too, right? Yeah. Like- you don't want, I mean, if you're being hired to be there on site, whether you're working head down in a project or not, your focus needs to be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I would expect that from my, from people who I yeah. bring on, you know, so of course I'm going to give that same level of attention to the people that, you know, if I'm working in their place. Right. Right. Um, in terms of negotiation, um, I don't have a whole lot of experience with working on site. A lot, almost all my work is remote uh, and direct to client. But I would be curious to know if anyone here has uh, has had to negotiate like kind of the hold system and first hold, second hold, and all that kind of BS. It seems like <laughs> everyone's got a different way of tackling that. Um, is anyone in the chat that, or excuse me, on the call that uh, has experience with that? I think Dan, you've had experience with it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of wonder. How it you sucks. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, being remote too, like, do you still do holds as you work remote with people? No, when I'm remote, I just straight up say like I'm either available or not, and if I have other things, I'll say like I can fit in maybe four to eight hours of work for you this day. Um, But yeah, the hold system was another reason why I kind of wanted to stay away from going on site because especially in big cities, a lot of them like to do what's called like hold spamming. I had this one agency or studio put me on hold for two months and they only booked me for like three days. So, Mm -hmm. and then they would just every month be like, hey, can we have you on first hold all month? And so I just started saying like, no, I'm not available. I already have a first hold, but if you want to challenge it, let me know what days you want me. And that's basically like, all right, if you're ready to like actually book me, sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And their response is always like, oh no, it's okay. Just put us on second hold, which I basically ignore. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I, Uh, I think it was Andy who first said, like, be your own first hold. Just pretend you are always on hold and, like, make them challenge it. Mm -hmm. And that will force them to, like, actually book you or not. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder, uh, I see like Sev is on the call and obviously Matt, you as well. Like, do you guys operate on like a hold system for certain artists if you need to bring them on to help with projects or are you kind of a little bit more uh, lax about that stuff? Um, as far as holds and stuff, I don't, I don't really, we don't really have to deal with holds. The, the thing is, what's beautiful about building a community of freelancers and stuff, like one reason I, I really love the Slack is that if we need more help, we can instantly go to like, you know, over 600 people and right. say, hey, we need some help. So every client that comes up, if we've got too much work, first I throw it over to Pickle Nick. And if Pickle Nick can't handle, you know, if, if he's already booked, then uh, uh, I try and just find some people on the Slack. I almost never, unless the, unless, <laughs> unless it's a music video that's only paying $5,000 for a, you know, four minute music video, which we've had like several times, you know, unless we have no work going on, most of the time I'll say no, mm-hmm. but, I, uh, but I'll, uh, we'll take everything, just about everything that comes our way, you know, and it doesn't matter how crazy busy it gets. We just want to, we just want to build and grow. Sure. I see, uh. Jesus has got his hand raised. Uh, do you want to chime in? Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yeah, man. How's it going? Uh, I was just listening to what Dan was saying. And, you know, I went freelance personally uh, about a month and a half ago. And I, I have been on hold with two clients for the past, like, four weeks. And they have not booked me. But, you know, being a new freelancer, of course, like, you know, you know beginner's mistake, I guess. So... I guess the, the solution to that would be saying what Dan was saying, like, look, I'm on first hold with somebody else, but if you want to challenge it, you can, and then go from there. Cause I don't want to scare clients away by saying, no, I, I don't do the whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. you, I'm either available or, or I'm not just tell me what you need and the dates and we'll go from there. Yeah. I don't know, Dan, do you want to speak to that? just a little bit further in terms of like yeah uh, i i definitely wouldn't say i don't do holds that kind of makes you seem like full of yourself right i I just lie and say uh i have a hold because uh the hold system isn't really going anywhere unfortunately (laughs) not until there's like a really big change in the industry Mm -hmm. um especially in big cities like and i get it like from a studio and i think um um they talked about this on the brograph podcast recently too like a lot of these studios from the producer's standpoint they don't really know what their needs are like they kind of need like a a pencil in area so it's and like those producers when they go out and get holds like they're talking to like 10 different artists to try to get a gauge of roughly who's available. Mm-hmm. So like when used properly, the hold system is really useful. It's just unfortunate that a lot of these companies are now like spamming artists with it. So yeah, yeah like I, I would avoid the whole like, I don't do holds unless you're like a huge name artist. Um, yeah. Just, so, just be smart about it, I guess. I just, yeah, I fib a little. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, talking about the etiquette of this as well, I mean, it seems like uh, there's kind of that unspoken rule that certain artists do 
save their first hold for themselves. And then that really makes a studio or agency or even client have to kind of pony up if they really want you to become part of this project or whatnot that in terms of challenging that first hold, it really makes them commit rather than just put a blanket hold on you. Right. Um, right. But yeah. And that said, like if, if you're really hurting for work and you have nothing else, like take that hold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing is that, you know, at least from my experience from like these two holes that I have, I have been having like other smaller clients come in, but then I'm saying to them, like, I already have two holes. You can challenge it, but then nothing happens with the other two holes with the two big studios, you know? So it's, it's kind of confusing and weird. The whole situation is just, yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's just first dibs. So if another client comes in and like, and this is what happened to me and screwed me over with uh, being on hold for like a whole month. Um, mm -hmm. I was like, Hey, I have a challenge. They're like, okay, well we do want you. And I never specified like the challenge was for like two weeks of work. And uh, they were like, okay, yeah, we want you. And then they brought me in and it was a day by day and they only ended up booking me for three days. So when you, they do challenge, um, you go to your first hold and you're like, Hey, this other company wants to book me for two weeks. Can you pay my full rate for two weeks? If not, you got to let me go. So like, okay. Smaller things come in, like make sure you're, if, if your first hold uh, wants you, make sure they're booking you for the same amount of time as the challenge that's coming in. Hmm. Got it. All right. Good point. Makes sense. I've got a question for you too, Dan. And this is coming from like the same mentality Matt was saying, where like, I don't really hold people if I have work coming in, but I'll reach out to maybe three people and say like, hey, I have this project coming up in the next two weeks or so are you guys booked right now or uh what's your schedule like or things like that what kind of etiquette could like people like me or matt or even studios be better at when reaching out to people um honestly just transparency uh one of the, my favorite studios who like they they can only afford like two-thirds of my normal agency day rate but i just love working with them and the producer over there is just extremely honest and upfront. They're like, hey, kind of thinking these two weeks, still waiting to hear from the client, like not sure what's your availability. Um, it's just being transparent and honest as possible, I think. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that and it makes me want to continue working with those kind of companies. <laughs> and for as someone who's like hired help for projects before too, like I always try to um, pay as soon as I can, <laughs> you know, like if you, that's one way to kind of retain like, you know, or, uh, artists and, and artists that you want to work with is like, cool, done the project, here's your pay. Or even like if the project's not done, if, if the uh, just portion of the project you need help on, like, here you go, like here's your day rate, whatever. Or, yeah, a lot of on-site agencies will ask me to bill at the end of every week, even if I'm like booked for a few months. Mm. So uh, I I do enjoy working with those companies because I get paid more frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, looking at negotiation too, I mean, 
you know, when you're either negotiating with a director client or a studio or whatnot, that could always be uh, one point that you can negotiate is, you know, is it net 30? Is it net 15? Is it net 60 or something crazy with like larger agencies? Um, so just one more, you know, thing to negotiate in some sort of contract if, uh, if you do get to that point and you need um, to kind of, you know, negotiate either better terms in your favor, you know? I got a question if I can. Yeah, of course. Related to that thing. Another thing that happened to me is that, you know, usually with like direct clients, you try to charge upfront. Mm -hmm. But I'm working strictly remotely because mainly because I'm in Florida. So there's not really big studios here. So the studio comes to me and then they want to book me. It's one of the, the, the ones I was on hall with. And I tell them like I, I do um, 40% up front. And then the producer calls me and says like, listen, that's not really something that, you know, people do in the industry and whatnot. And we, we are going to pay you super fast after the project is done. So I just wanted to see, you know, what's the standard out there? Because sometimes you're able to charge up front, but it looks like if you're working with a studio and as a freelancer, you're not supposed to do that. And it makes sense because, you know, they got to be paid first to be able to pay their team. Yeah, and I, go ahead, Liam. Yeah, I was gonna say, no, they don't have to be paid first. Like if they're a legit company, they should have money in the bank to pay you. Okay. Uh, like <laughs> the, only, the only time that I am ever not paid upfront is if I'm on a retainer. And so, and, and even though I'm kind of paid upfront, but like right now I'm working for my old employer since I've gone back to full-time, or since I've gone back to full-time freelance, and I'm invoicing them monthly, and that's because I'm on a retainer. Um, but otherwise, every project that I've ever had, even if it's like a two-week booking, I almost always get paid 50% upfront and then work out like a milestone payment or things like that. So when they're saying that's not industry standard, they either are running their business really poorly and don't have money in the bank, so they're waiting to get paid or they're not taking deposits first, which they should be doing. But that, to me, that's just like a giant red flag that they are going to be late on their payments for you. Yeah, I thought it was really strange. But, I, you know, since I'm starting out and I do really need the work, I just went with it. So we'll see, I guess. In my experience, I've experienced the opposite, Liam. Um, any kind of work for a higher job, if I'm charging a day rate, like I'll you send an invoice at the end of the week or at the end of the project. It's only project rates that I can charge like by the phase or half up front. But any work for hire, any studio or agency, none of them have ever, that I've heard of, allowed like half up front. Maybe it's just because I'm not asking, but like that's, that's not the typical here in New York. Yeah, I guess I should clarify, like, because I generally work like on projects for people and not like my, I almost never do a day rate booking anymore. So that, that said, I would say if you're coming in for work for hire, especially like on-site type work, then you, yeah, don't expect to be paid up front half or anything. Yeah. I think it's tough for like a agency or studio to pay that upfront because even though they might hold you for two weeks, you might only do what three days of work or something like that, you know, Dan and, and for them to give you 40% of two weeks up front, like that just doesn't make sense as a business necessarily for them. Mm -hmm. But if you do 
uh, like project-based pricing, then yeah, I would say a deposit, make sure that um, everyone has skin in the game. You know, like if they give you money as a deposit, you know that project's happening, it's off to, you know, it's getting kicked off. And then you're also committed to it as well. You know, uh, studio day rate stuff, I think it's would be very tough to get that deposit. And I think uh, similar to what Dan had alluded to there too. Um, it's just not necessarily standard, it seems like. Um, but anything direct to client or project-based, like I would definitely do something to get a deposit um, and with a varying degree of percentage, whether it's 25%, 50% or whatnot with different milestone payments. So I guess it depends on the situation. Um, so you're saying even if it's, if it's project-based, but even if it is working with a studio, I should try to get upfront, especially if I ha- I've never worked with them because that's, you know. Yeah, I mean, if a project's coming to you and saying like, hey, we want you to execute this project, all right? And then you, you're in your head like doing the math of how much it's gonna cost you for that project. Okay, cool. Like then I think it's, um, acceptable to ask for a deposit or a down payment for that. But if they're just going to hire you day rate to like chip away at projects or different parts of projects and you're one of, you know, 10 artists on it, I think you're just going to be at your net 30 day rate kind of payment. Um, But anything project based, I would suspect you would want, um, want some sort of deposit even through an agency. Um, Makes sense. Again, I don't have much experience in that world per se, but that would be um, that would be my two cents on it. Uh, yeah, and I I would say too, I've had situations where I've had studios want to book me on a day rate, but then when they do the math on their end, they realize it'd probably be cheaper just to hire me as a project. Um, so always like definitely be willing to negotiate as we're talking about and like be flexible on your terms because I've had people say we want to book you for the next 10 days and then I say all right well my day rate is x so it's gonna be so much for those 10 days like oh wow that's a lot can we maybe do it on a project rate what would you charge for that because it's kind of like more of a bulk cost and like a guaranteed booking um and then they'll most likely pay a day rate so um Definitely like always negotiate, talk about different terms that you can use. Like I've, I've gotten contracts from people and read through them and they've been terrible. And then I'll ask them, Hey, do you mind if we use my terms and they'll read through them? And we ended up usually like merging the two contracts a little bit too. So um, always go in with the idea that there's going to be flexibility on both ends, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, booking yourself through like, bigger studios or I'm not sure who was, you know, holding you or or approaching you for that. But, you know, if they have a reputation and and they're like a a known studio, no name, you know, they don't want to screw their reputation by all of a sudden not paying you or, you know, like I would feel somewhat safe with that. Um, But yeah, anything that would be like a new client, direct client or a new project, uh, definitely deposit would be the way to go. And it looks like most people agree in the chat. Um, Tony's saying uh, studio work, 30 days, net 30 or so, project-based stuff, half up front, um, 40% up front. Um, But yeah, 
I don't know if anyone else wants to chime in on this, uh, but feel free to. Yeah, Dan, I think you made a good point in the chat too. You said, you know, make sure that you're invoicing every week. And I think that kind of takes some of the risk off you too. So like Jesus, if you're going to work with them and they say, you know, we can't do a deposit or they want to do a day rate or hourly or whatever, then mitigate that risk by saying, all right, then I need to invoice every week or invoice every two weeks. Because I've had that situation too, where it's like, it's a new client, it feels kind of risky, but then the client agreed to let me invoice every week. And then I got paid, I think either on a net 15 or net 30. So at least that way I knew the invoice was out there and I was going to get money guaranteed. At least I'm invoicing for money guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so one thing I want to bring up too that kind of came up in the MDA Slack uh, recently was someone who had a project kind of a quote unquote immediate project that uh, the client needed um, everything, you know, the super tight timeline. They were due to deliver something every day, you know, style frames, storyboards, et cetera. But their, their point of contact within the agency or client was really slow at communicating the different um, milestones and the different uh, phases of the project and how to kind of deal with that because being on a super tight timeline, how do you deal with, you know, keeping that project moving to hit that final delivery date? Um, and there was some good chat about that. Um, but just curious to see if anyone has run into that with clients or studios or whatnot and how you handled that. Because again, that's somewhat of a negotiation um, and there's, kind of a fine etiquette, I would think, to, um, you know, keeping that project moving without ruffling too many feathers. Um, but I'll open it up to anyone who's kind of had a similar situation. I mean, I've, I've kind of had those situations. It kind of go, goes along the lines of, like, setting your boundaries for like uh, revisions and stuff too, like making sure that, you know, who you're communicating with has the final say in, in revisions. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's really tough. I, I don't know that I've ever negotiated it in a contract though. So I'd be interested to hear that. Like I generally just try and make sure that I'm checking in multiple times a day. That way at least one or multiple emails are being seen by my point of contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like, uh, looks like Shar was chiming in on the chat. Uh, I don't know if you have a mic or not, but, um, you know, saying if I don't get, you know, X response by this date, it's going to kind of push the final due date. So if they're slacking and they're slow to give any sort of uh, feedback or whatnot, it's just kind of a, a chain of a, or a chain reaction there, you know? So like if you're two days late, giving me revisions, the due date's going to kind of be pushed back by X. Um, let's see in the contract phase, if it's tight deadline, Shars up front saying that, Hey, you got to be quick to respond. Um, <laughs> which I've actually had two projects that have a situation like this. And, um, what I did, I put a little kind of clause in my contract saying that, 
if I don't hear anything back within 24 to 48 hours, uh, it depended, it was dependent on the two different projects. One was 24, one was 48 hours. But if I don't, if you go radio silence, I'm going to just say, I'm going to take that as that is approved. And that's one way to kind of keep that deadline in place, but also the process moving forward. And if it's in the contract and it's visible and the client signs off on that, then, you know, execute it and don't feel bad about doing that. Um, and it worked for the two different projects that I uh, added that clause to. Um, but that's also just one way of handling it. Um, I might chime in here too on that. Just yes, Scott. A little bit. Is it, I, I would say like almost always when, before I start a project with someone, people are always concerned about pricing. And I say the things that really, you know, kind of drive pricing is a deadline and, you know, the, like when I can start with everything I need to. So I always kind of bring up a, a little bit of a clause just saying like, Hey, if, you know, if, if, if this starts getting like rush fees or things aren't coming through, this can add to the pricing. And then along the project, when I start getting to a point where I feel that's getting, getting to that stage, I, it just allows me to give them a little reminder saying like, Hey, we're kind of cutting it tight on this, either shape up or the, the budget's going to go up a little more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And helps. I mean, if they're going to throw that on your lap about, hey, we need it fast, we need it now, we need it by the end of the week or whatnot, then they should also be in the position of expecting work from you to sign off on or give feedback on. Like, you know, I, I just feel like if they're going to give you that responsibility, then it's their responsibility as well to be um, responsive, you know. Um Let's see. Mariner's asking in the chat, how to establish your kind of point of contact. One of his biggest issues is multiple people commenting on one project and it stalls as a result because of their contradicting opinions. Uh, I think that's a really good kind of question. Um, and I think it's a tough one to navigate because depending on who hits you up for your for the uh, project or uh, whether it's a producer or a direct -a client owner or somebody. Um, I think it is um, important to establish who that person is and who are the stakeholders within the project. Because if there's people commenting on the video, but they really don't in the chain of command over there, don't really have a say, like could get trumped. Uh, Sorry for using that word, but you know, uh, uh, you don't, you don't want to get stuck in that kind of hamster wheel of like their internal debate, like figure out who is the stake, the main stakeholder and kind of, hopefully that's your main contact, but I would be willing to bet that's the feedback you want to be listening to and not all the other noise that might be chiming in on the, on the, uh, the email or the frame IO or whatever platform you might use. Um, let's see. Dan. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in. Hey, yeah, go ahead, Elizabeth. Just on what you were saying, you know, I, I was, um, when I was thinking about how to build my business as a motion designer, um, 
I'm, uh, I thought really hard about contracts because um, I'm so sick of them and they, I, they're annoying and they're um, ignored. They're not read. Uh, they've got a lot of bullshit in them. They're scary. They're scary to clients, just all this stuff. And um, the thing that won me over, and I, for, I forget, this isn't my idea, but I had a, you know, a V8 moment, which was how a contract can be just a crutch to find out who your, your real uh, approval chain is. Mm. Right. So mm -hmm. if you're working with a producer without signing authority, that producer is not your approval chain, even though that's the person you're working with, you know, right. in order to supposedly approve the intermediate uh, deliverables. The person who actually had the signing authority and signed your contracts uh, is the person who you will be asked your final, you know, final underscore, final underscore, final <laughs> will be escalated to that person. It'll be the first time they see it. And uh, that's really who you're working for. So, you know, I'm, I'm, since I had that revelation, now I'm a big fan of contracts, even if they just have, you know, Lorem Ipsum on them, just so I can grab that name out of folks. Mm. So. And did you have to kind of navigate that in a certain project of, you know, trying to figure out who that approval person was and really wait for them to chime in on stuff? Oh yeah, no, that totally happens over and over again. I think I think a lot of people recognize that you know you you have a hard time getting. I'd say almost every project you have a hard time getting approval or even any mind share early, right? Like just you know your precious animatic is not going to get any get any eyeballs, at least by the right people, right? Uh, your draft one is not going to get seen. You can try, but it's. Um, you know, it's rough. And, mm -hmm. and uh, then you, you try to expand, if, at least if you have a name, you know, you know, you know that they're not on the mails, right? So and in, in terms of like etiquette too, like, what do you, what are your thoughts on if you're kind of stalling out with the producer or there's not good communication or whatnot? What it, what's your thought about finding that name in the contract and kind of elevating your project beyond the producer? Yeah. Um, so the, um, I think it comes down to there's two types of projects that you, either you're, either you're project managing it yourself, the motion design side of it, or you're working work for hire. So if you work for hire in terms of a day rate, the, the studio that's hired you is the project manager. And if you have a slow day, it's frustrating, but that's on them. Absolutely. If they're late to give you feedback, that's on them. Um, and that's what personal projects are for is pull out their crappy machine and, and get it done. Right. You know, you're on site. Right. Um, but if you are, um, remote, that's a totally different, I mean, usually with remote work, you're also project managing the aspect of, okay, I need your feedback in three days, um, or else, right. Follow the following will happen. And what I'm a fan of is the presumptive close. Hmm. So that's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a little, it's a shitty and desperate move, honestly, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it's there, um, especially use it with the person who's not the final stakeholder. Hmm. Right. So do you, do you need that defined or? Oh, I think that's makes sense. Close. I don't know how. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, I mean, I think speaking personally from my experience, um, if I've had a couple projects stall out um, and I do know who that final stakeholder is, even though there's a producer and whatnot involved, if I send three emails to a producer and I'm not getting any emails back um, or any sort of feedback, then I'll kind of elevate it to, you know, that next level, whether it's just a CC on the email of like, Hey, still waiting to hear back. And maybe that stakeholder then can nudge the producer of like, Hey, like what's the deal with this? You know? Um, but I think, you know, again, just etiquette wise, give the producer the benefit of the doubt that they might've missed the email or they're busy or whatnot. So in my head, I kind of have like a number three, like if I've sent three emails and I'm not getting any response and like now it's time to elevate it to the next level. If I have that contact, I'm a two, um, just so you know, you do too. I have a two rule. <laughs> two rule. Yeah. Yeah. Two, two ghosted pings. Um, and Dan said in the chat, like, he just asked who he needs to report to. <laughs> and like, maybe that's one way of doing it too. Like maybe the producer's just kind of like, yeah, I've got you in on this project, but this is the guy who, or girl that is going to be signing off on a straight this. answer. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dan, your, uh, your mic's not working. It seems like <laughs> I see you talking. But... Can you hear me now? There you go. Yeah had anyone like give me a weird face or any everyone's like oh yeah of course here yeah let me introduce you to the creative director or like <laughs> oh yeah and like especially if it's i i have someone on the inside which is uh thankfully a lot of my clients um i can be even more straightforward with them and they'll be like oh yeah whatever you do don't listen to this art director they're <laughs> like so but I always just ask <laughs> and it works for me. Cool. Um, that said, I should also note, like I mostly work for hire. So I, I don't do too many project-based projects. So that, that might be a little bit different. Yeah, I would like to see um, how many people in here are I mean, I guess it might be hard to see. We don't necessarily have a polling system or whatnot, but experiences versus, you know, work for hire versus, you know, um, project-based kind of direct to client. Um, I mean, I guess that's still technically work for hire, but um, the difference between how many people are doing day rates versus project-based pricing. Um, so what's the real, you know, definition of work for hire? Because I come from another country and, you know, that's a new, like, term for me here. Uh, as far as I know, and please, other people chime into this, but essentially, like, uh, work for hire is you're being hired as an artist under, you know, a, uh, as an artist to help execute a project. You give up the any sort of like ip or or whatnot the the client or studio or agency will kind of own all that you're just hired in like a hired hand whether you know it be an electrician or someone comes in and just does it it's like they didn't build your house they were just part of it they don't really own any about any um direct portion of it uh and i think i think that's a 
real brief way. I don't know if anyone else has a better way of kind of explaining that, but uh, essentially you're giving up all your kind of intellectual property about it. You're just being hired on to execute something. Got um, it. So like Steve might have something or whoever. Uh, there, there's a, yeah. a breakdown on, I think the IRS's website of it. Um, just because there's so many companies that try to get around like intellectual things, but also whether or not you're a full-time employee. So that kind of falls under it as well. So they break down like, what is a full-time employee? What is work for hire? Um, things like that. I think it also varies state per state a little bit too. So just mm. double, double check. Cause I know like in, I think 48 of the states that, almost always people are considered work for hire, but there's a couple ones. I think Hannah is lucky, like in Montana, um, they have like a couple more rights than other states. Um, so just double check with your laws in that state or country if you're listening outside of the United States. Um, but for United States, definitely on the IRS. And I'll try and look for the link and put it in the show notes or in the weekly email. Um, there's a, a cool breakdown of it. And I, I think it's mainly like 10, 10 points that you check off and be like, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Then you're definitely work for hire. Mm-hmm. If not, then you still should own your intellectual rights. Yeah. I, I would definitely like to have that link. And I have a follow-up question for you, Mark, since mm-hmm. you're talking about, you know, the intellectual property and all that. So basically that means, and I want to see also you know, what Dan and everybody thinks about this. If you're working freelance and you're working, you know, remote, how do you handle like project files for the client? Because I know that there's, there's a lot of people that charge a, uh, an extra fee for that. But then there's also a lot of people that don't really, you know, uh, they don't give a crap, you know, about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If you're, oh, go, go ahead, ahead Liam. Oh, I was going to say, if you're, if you're work for hire, you have to give up the project files. That, that's what you're there for you're, you're there to make work for them for them to own yeah okay. if you're being hired as work for hire via whoever uh essentially they do they own the project files already if you're going to be working uh you know project base or direct client or something uh other than the specific work for hire and um then you can negotiate rates or, or prices for project files but um, I Very feel like there's, <laughs> I feel like there's also something, um, in a contract that like, before you start a project or whatnot, the client's got to make it known that it's work for hire. It can't be something that is just like added on at the end. I think it has to be like kind of defined clearly at the beginning of the project. Um, okay. That's my take on it. I don't know if anyone else has something to uh, chime into that but um steve i noticed you had something about uh kind of the work for hire stuff yeah i was more talking about um well thinking about um how when you're like doing a project fee you're kind of taking the risk that it might go over um rather than say if you're doing like a day rate where you'll get your rate every day that you're working um so generally i always try to take project rates because then if I can double up projects and I'm not necessarily expecting to be working between you know, nine to five on that project because they're just expecting the project to be finished within 
eight days or something. Mm -hmm. um, so you can actually generally tend to do a lot better if you're doing a project fee. Um, but then you potentially could end up, you know, being, uh, ending up having to do a few late nights to <laughs> fix any problems or whatnot. But, um, right. That was my experience. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think everyone's just kind of echoing the same thing in the chat about work for hire and how they own the project. Um, and it should be um, laid out clearly in the contract beforehand. Um, and whether it, I mean, sometimes it is project-based can be um, work for hire as well. Uh, speaking from experience, I did like an album cover and it was work for hire and um, you know, I sent them all the project files and all that. Um, but it was specified in the contract that you it was beforehand. Okay. Yeah. So if yeah. I'm being, if I'm being hired as a day rate, like freelancer, I, I should consider that they're going to want, of course, the project files and that would be work for hire. Yes. But if I I'm think most, I to, sorry, if I'm being hired to do like style friends for like three days for this, I don't know, this person that, you know, is the middleman between the, the real client and, and, and the team, and maybe I could try to charge for the project files. You'll probably still be work for hire. Okay. Like, yeah. Like the, the only way that you're really not work for hire is if it's direct to client in the project. And sometimes if you're working with a middleman, maybe, but it's all dependent on their contract too. Um, but definitely like if, if there is, say you're working with an agency and they're working for Nike and you're going to be working on that Nike project with them just because you're doing the storyboards and everything at, at like a project rate there, that agency is going to expect you to give over those project files. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, go ahead, Liam. Oh, I think my mic was just picking up, but I do, I, I have another question. It's kind of, different question than what we're talking on right now um mm -hmm. how and etiquette wise how many of you try to keep your price exactly with what you put in the estimate because i have like a byline in mind that says like estimates are just that they're estimates and sometimes projects are more or less than that um but i've also gotten pushback from people when a project goes over and I'm, I, I try and be as transparent as possible when projects are starting to go over and, um, you know, they're going beyond the scope of work. But, you know, do you honor what you put in an estimate and really try to stick with that? Or if something comes up, do you just say, like, you know, you're, you're going beyond the scope? Tony, do you have anything to uh, you want to answer that? Uh, there, there we go. go. All right. No, I mean, right now I've been fortunate enough. The, the, the places I'm getting the bulk of my work, um, the one, the one studio I'm doing uh, project based stuff for, um, you know, I've done kind of enough projects there that we're sort of, we'll just budget it out on the front end. Um, and, and the, uh, they're very good at, um, taking care of they're kind of they're usually like the middleman between you know they're hiring me to help them with their clients and if things start to go over we've got a project right now um that's that's drug on for 
since August through a bunch of revisions and stuff. And, and they're going back and pushing back against their client to negotiate more rates to compensate for all that. So I've been well taken care of as far as that one goes. The other one where I do a lot of in-house work, that's usually set up upfront too. And, but that's, um, but it, they tend to have overages and they just know that they do. So I'm usually billing them weekly or bi-weekly depending on the amount of work. So I haven't experienced a lot of, you know, having to go back to the table on my end to, to cover that so far. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm, you know, I mean, I've only been freelancing since May. So, you know, I just haven't had a lot of exposure to that. I add something to my estimates uh, in the header that's, that essentially says the following proposal provides insight to estimated cost to deliver X project at X number of seconds um, provided on the storyboard or script or whatever it might be provided to you or assets. It's kind of a blanket statement like that. And then at the end of my estimate, I also say pricing is based on the cost invo- involved to fulfill the scope of work. If additional concepts, requests, or revisions cannot be fulfilled within this budget, the client will be notified before any extra charges occur, and those extra charges will be billed separately. So um, I actually just dealt with this with one of my projects. They approached me for a video, and then they needed all these web assets, and I was like, all right, cool, like definitely can do that, but let me send you an estimate for what that is going to be, um, what extra charges that will be for. Um, so I think as long as you're um, upfront about it and you kind of give them the statement and the idea that, hey, if you start shifting a lot of stuff, we're going to have to revisit this. I think from my experience, the clients have been uh, accepting to that. Um, but I'd also be curious, similar to Liam, to see if anyone um, has gotten pushback on something like that. Uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, but with that being said too, just speaking like personally, if I do give them a, a project number and if there might be a one extra little ask or whatnot, I try to, um, make them happy by providing that. And I mean, if it's a big, big ask, we revisit it. But if it's, you know, one, one extra render or something like that, I try to um, kind of waive that fee, if you will. I let them know like, hey, you know what, I'll do that for you. And some of that is kind of the um, keeping the client happy and kind of um, the networking portion of that, I guess, um, to retain clients. Because if, if you do them a solid, um, I feel like they look at you like, you know, you're looking out for their best interests and, and you're not going to charge them for every little, um, you're not going to nickel and dime them per se. Um, but there's a, uh, well, Dan saying in the chat, if he gets pushback, it's kind of a red flag and you don't want to work with them in the future, which definitely makes sense too. Have you had experiences with that, Dan? Uh, you're, you're unmuted, but we still can't hear you. <laughs> Is it working now? Yeah. All right. Um, 
Yeah, I've had a few different types of scenarios. I've had some that they really nickel and dime you and like I measured up their office and modeled out two different design plans for them and charged four hours, which is insane. And because I wasn't in the office, they're like, did this really take four hours? And they were nickeling and diming me. So I just straight up stopped working with them. Um, then I've had other clients where like, I was working in house with them and it, the client that they had very clearly were uh, creeping the scope and they really needed the extra help. So I would stay extra hours and I would like work overtime um, on the weekends. But I like, you know, after the first night I said, hey, just so you know, um, normally I charge extra hours like I have an extra hourly rate after nine hours of work for my day rate so I'll give it to you free this time but just know moving forward that's how I'm going to be billing mm -hmm. and like I ended up never even getting a response but when I just invoiced I invoiced for all the extra hours and because they were a good client that I wanted to keep I just gave them a discount and removed like a third to a half of all that extra overtime as like a first time client discount. Mm -hmm. So it was clear like, hey, I did a lot of extra work for you guys. In the future, I will be charging you for it, but you're still doing them the favor. Right. And I think, uh, you know, kind of revisiting what Steve was just talking about a few minutes ago is um, day rate versus project rate. Like, I think if you're billing project rate, it's really up to you to figure out what you're going to charge and either pad it or do something in case any sort of scope creep starts happening. Because if that's the case and you bid by the project, you could all of a sudden be working, like he said, very late hours, trying to make that final deliverable happen for the budget you said. But I think also looking at it as, you know, a business owner, if the scope is starting to creep in pretty good. Even if you bid the project, you have to make that client aware that, hey, this is dramatically changing it. It's not changing a color or anything like that. It's kind of revisiting what we're, what we're doing or, or adding a, a whole other slew of deliverables. Um, are, are you talking about like changes in direction and feedback or are you talking about like maybe you underestimated the work that you had to do? Well, I think if you, if you're the one underestimating the amount of work and time it's going to take, that's then I, that's on you, you know, and sucks, but you're going to have to just like figure that out and, and kind of suck it up and maybe you'll be in the red after that project. Um, but if you've laid it out and you feel confident with your number and then all of a sudden from one video, now they need two videos and they're like, well, it's already, you know, like you've kind of done half the work already and blah, blah, blah like that's a whole other deliverable that's could be a whole other project you know and you have to be willing to stand up and say like yo this is this is dramatically changing what the original project was i'm okay with that i'm i'm able to help you out but it is going to change the budget okay makes sense um let's see people are just kind of responding to dan's uh point about giving a kind of a, a discount or a quote unquote discount because that goes a long way with client relations or it's kind of a, a cool client discount or whatnot. 
Um, but yeah, let's see if you underestimated. Dan's saying if you underestimated, it's your fault. If the producer messed up or if the client messed up, then that's on them. But you also can, yeah, you can be the hero. You can come in and like save their ass. <laughs> right. Sorry. But it might cost them more, but you can, you know, you can save them. Um, Think big picture and, you know, do this one favor for them now and then get more work later, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I had a client where essentially that exact thing happened. Like they were like, oh shit, like we forgot to add this to the scope. And it was, it was five still frames or something like that. And I was like, you know what? I got you. No worries. And I've done three more projects with them. You know what I mean? So it's, it took a little extra work for me, but like in the big scheme of things, it was worth kind of taking that hit on my end to foster the re relationship for, you know, looking more big picture long-term. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. We're just, we're past 11. It's uh, about quarter after 11. Um, does anyone else have any specific questions or whatnot? Um, I'll look through the chat. I just want to piggyback off what you just said. I would, sure. if you're giving them a discount, definitely still put what it would cost in your invoice and then have a separate line item for that discount, just so they can see the value of that extra work that you did. Okay. That's a good tip. Yeah. And if anything, it looks like, oh, sweet, they're hooking me up. And it's not just like this verbal communication or an email that like brought that, you know, to their attention whoever sees that invoice, right? Like whether it's the executive producer or accounting or whatever, will see that like you're doing them a solid. Right. Um, Marin is saying in the chat, has anyone been approached by someone who had no idea of the scope of what they were asking and how did you handle that? Um, yes and no. Yes. I've been kind of approached with stuff like that. And for me, it's that's a not a red flag per se, but a very, very deep yellow caution flag. Uh, and pretty much what I will do with them is continue the conversation, but say, hey, I can't even give you an estimate until you give me a better idea of what you need, whether it's assets you might provide. Do you need me to storyboard it? Do you need me to write the script? Do you need a voiceover? Like, you have to kind of push back to them and say, Hey, develop this idea a little bit further before I can really sink my teeth into it because I want to a give you the best product I can b estimate it as well as I can and see like, keep it moving because all of a sudden, if you don't have an idea of what you want, we're going to be stuck in the development phase or, you know, phase one for X number of days, you know, or however long, like an infinite amount of time, if they're just kind of spinning the wheels and um, it's to their benefit to iron all that out before um, approaching you or, or, you know, before getting a, an official estimate. What if they say, why don't you just tell me your day rate? And then, well, I guess that doesn't, you know, apply either because you got to know the scope of the work to know how many days you will have mm -hmm. to work on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it's as simple as, you know, getting on a call and sometimes you have to educate the client, right? Like, and, and I think this happens more often than not with direct to client business. You know, if you're working with a producer at a studio or whatnot, they obviously 
have, you know, been this, uh, been through this before, but if you're getting direct to client work, you might have to take a little bit of time to um, educate the client of like, all right, so before I can really give you anything, this is what I need uh, on my end, you know, to really understand the scope of what you're asking me to do. Um, got it. Got it. Yeah. Uh, people are just saying like, come back to me when you know more, you know, <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> Shar's uh, also saying um, that he's got a list of questions, he or her, I'm sorry, um, give them a list of questions. And I believe there's some resources out there. I think the future has something that deals with this, kind of like that initial client meeting and certain questions uh, to ask. And I think within some of those questions should be, who is the stakeholder, you know, like outside of what assets are coming, you know, to revisit um, what we were talking about earlier, that's a place where you can really iron out who, who's going to be making the decisions and who, who's a good point of contact. Um, you know, I'd say, I think it's important if you have a client who hasn't <clears throat> done much motion work, cause I, I kind of split some of my time with bigger professional studios and then with just kind of smaller direct to client work. And I feel like those smaller clients, you know, kind of the same way you kind of give the cool, client discount, you know, educating them, like teaching them how the process goes is, is, you know, helps everything go a lot smoother and they really appreciate it in the long run. And it gives you a lot more, you know, they try to figure out ways to use you in the long run. I think that stuff is huge. Totally. And I think it also positions yourself as like the quote unquote expert, right? Like if you're educating them, then if they understand that, then they're going to look at you, you know, a little bit differently. I think, I, I think they're going to look at you as a, a business owner who knows who they're, you know, knows what you're talking about. And the fact that you can, you know, voice that and educate them will make them feel more comfortable working with you. Uh, is that your experience? Scott? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, it makes them more comfortable in the project. And you think a lot of times, like if a business, a smaller direct to client business that hasn't worked in big studios, this is like a really exciting project for them to work on. And it's like when, when they have someone that kind of gives them a guiding hand, it's like, Hey, here you go. Here's how this whole thing works. It's like going skiing or snowboarding for the first time. And you've never been, but your friend's been is an expert. It's like, he going to leave you in the dust or is he going to sit and kind of help you, you know, enjoy the experience through the day. And it's like a big, you know, I think it makes a big difference. I've had a lot of people that I've worked with on that small front that have, gone out and told other friends and got me more business just because of that alone. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of the questions that come up in these different slacks about freelancing or whatnot are like, how do you get clients and how do you network and how do you do this and that? And I feel like a lot of uh, a great answer to those questions is essentially what Scott just said. Like if you're willing to help people out, you're nice, your education or your edge, oh, I can't talk. Um, educating people and being transparent with them. And like Sharzi and saying in the chat, the more clients kind of are drawn to you and the more referrals you'll get. And, you know, even if the, the project doesn't work out at that moment, you'll probably be the next, you know, if something does come up, they'll call you because, you know, you've taken the time and, uh, and effort to really explain to them kind of what a animation project looks like. Yeah. It's like the, the two C's communication and cash, you know, when you figure those two things out in a project, everything else flows easy. Right. 
Um, let's see. And I guess Mariner's asking a follow-up question about like, how long do you wait until you walk away from a project that might be off the rails from the beginning? Um, kind of using my three email rule, like if I need to educate them beyond, you know, two or three phone calls or emails, then I'm, I'm kind of like, all right, you know, you guys, I've said my piece, you really need to iron out what you need from me. And then I, I'm here for uh, when you figure that out. But um, I guess that position's different for everyone. If you don't have much work coming in and, and whatnot, I'm sure, you know, it varies for anyone. So I, I think there's no right answer to that. But you also don't want to dig yourself into a hole where you've spent a lot of time on a project with a client that doesn't have their budget nailed down yet. You're not getting paid or there's no deposit yet. Um, because sometimes that can just end up being a, um, project that like an Oh fuck project. <laughs> like, um, that just is off the rails from the get go and never gets on, you know? So I got um, another question if I can, I know that we're, yeah, man. Know, over the hour already but this this is it's just happening to me now and i i already you know took a solution but i want to see what everybody does so this studio approaches me and they want me to work with they want me to do the style frames but they wanted they want me to work on redshift and i usually work on octane so how do you handle like and of course they're hiring me uh with a day rate but how do you handle the fact that you know i was transparent with them i told them I, I would need to, you know, buy the plugin and learn it, but I, I'm down. So how do you, how do you handle that? Because you can increase really your day rate because you already told them, but then you have to, you know, put the money in for the plugin and you know the time to learn the plugin that they need. Does anyone have a similar experience to that that they want to contribute? I mean, I think you can you can run Redshift on the on the demo mode. It just marks a, does a watermark on it, so it, you know it doesn't hurt to have it in your arsenal. And I'll, but as far as the cost for it, depends on how much stuff you're you're pulling in using you know like specifically for render stuff. I try to buy as many as I can when I get work that pays for it, and then I can use them. You know, I'm more flexible in the future, but it's definitely an upfront investment, which hurts. For sure. Yeah, I definitely just went with it. And there's a lot of clients that have asked me if I use Redshift. So I just saw it as that an investment for the long run, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was just yeah. curious to see what you guys thought. Yeah, I think what you did and how you handled it is probably best. Uh, you know, it's an upfront cost to you, um, but it will make you more marketable in the future. You know, and I think also you sucking up the cost and not approaching a studio or a client saying like, hey, I have to buy this plugin to execute your project and passing the cost off to them. Like, I think that that's a little bit murky because like then they might think that they now own the license to Redshift, right. you know, and they're kind of renting it to you or letting you use it. So I think you just buying it personally up front, like that's a great way of handling that. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of learning it, outside of the hours that you're being paid for, it's up to you to kind of deep dive into some of the training, you know, um, and really figuring it out. Um, 
And I think there's a lot of free resources out there and, you know, different Slack channels with a lot of knowledgeable people in, in them where if you do get stuck, I know a lot of people that are, they're very um, willing to help out um, and right. answer any questions that you may have, especially the Octane to Redshift. There's a lot of crossover, but you know, it's just stuff that's named differently. It does exactly. the same thing, but you got to just figure out what it is, you know? Yeah. And I was transparent with them. I told them I've used the trial and, you know, I didn't feel like there was a, a steep learning curve for me. And they were cool enough to just decided to go with me, even knowing that. So that says a lot of, about them, I guess. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And you, I mean, I don't know if you're working with any other artists on the project there, but that is probably the best kind of wealth of knowledge you can find too. Like if you're working with other artists that have good experience with Redshift on this project, mm -hmm being on a Slack or however you communicate with them, you know, asking them questions like this is a great time just to like fire off workflow questions or how do I do this? Like I do this in Octane, but how do I do it in Redshift? And um, I made that jump a couple months ago and um, a lot of people in the Brograph Slack and the MDA Slack, like um, Liam and Billy, and there's a lot of people out there that um, help kind of coach me through of like, all right, you did it like this in Octane, do it like this in redshift it's the same thing it's this node's named x you know right um, so makes sense cool yeah man but congratulations on getting into redshift that's rad and as you know i'll say this too as a remote freelancer if you start doing direct to client projects and um not necessarily day rate stuff the benefit of um redshift is being able to use the render farms no, and that was, that. that was one reason why I made the shift because I, I don't have much horsepower here on my machine. I've got three 1080 TIs, but on like a heavy lifting scene, like it's still yeah. chugging along. But if I can send that up to pixel plow or there's a couple other, um, uh, render farm services that do Redshift, I can keep working while having it rendering in the cloud. And that was a huge time saver for a few projects of mine. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited for it too. Nice. Um, all right. Well, we're almost at an hour and a half here. I've got a few links and inspiration that we can, I'll share out. Um, and let me see if I can grab, uh, first off is Andrew price. Who's blender guru. Um, just posted up out on Twitter that, He's starting to dabble in Houdini, which will be interesting to see because he's been in the industry, obviously, for a long time. Very smart, knowledgeable dude. And it'll be interesting to see how he dives into Houdini and how he might start into, um, integrating that with Blender. Um, so check that out and maybe stay up on, on his Twitter and see what happens there. Um, last week, Ryan Summers was on uh, the Futures live show talking about kind of the state of the industry and, you know, a bunch of topics, but it seemed like that went really well. And there was a lot of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of interaction with uh, people in the, in the chat. And it seems like they might be doing a, a series or at least a few shows about squashing the beef. Uh, putting a link in the 
uh, in the chat here, but it seems like there's a lot of varying opinions within our industry of, you know, rates and how to handle projects and artists versus business and all this stuff. So uh, there might be some interesting uh, discussions happening there pretty soon. I think uh, Andrew Emberry has responded and I think he's going to kind of be the first guest or the first one they're going to have on. So if that's the case, that will be a really good, interesting um, uh, discussion or debate. Uh, Andrew has posted, uh, he posted a, a Medium article or Medium blog uh, about the School of Motion article that came out uh, a while back, a few years ago. Was it a few years ago? Maybe a year ago or so. Um, about uh, studio studio freelancers versus remote freelancers and and whatnot. Uh, I believe that was a motionographer article. Um, but if you haven't seen this blog that he wrote, it's a, a great kind of counterpoint to Joey's article on motionographer, and we'll link to both of those. I'm gonna pop it in the in the chat right now. That's Andrew's. Um, Andrew's medium article. Um, other than that, let's see, uh, Raphael Rao just posted a new personal project. Um, it's called meters and it's pretty fucking sick. Uh, I'll link to the Behance page, some beautiful rendering stuff. Uh, some old analog kind of meters and whatnot. So I guess that's why it's called meters. Uh, but some, amazing like texturing and whatnot in this project. So definitely check that out. All rendered or created with uh, Cinema 4D and Octane. And um, definitely check that out. Uh, School of Motion also sent out their newsletter this morning that had an interesting article um, about a study that finds that artists become famous through their friends, not their originality of their work. And I thought that might just be an interesting read for people uh, with so much talk about networking and um, going to different events just to network and meeting more people within the industry. I would say, you know, the article is pretty interesting, but uh, it does reference like more of the fine artists back in the day before uh, social media. I mean, this is early 1900 stuff, but um worth a read and it does just kind of show the power of networking and who you know and who you meet up with and and whatnot um and then finally there was a uh, update to the uh, nitro box which is uh, nitro 4d is he creates some amazing plugins for cinema 4d um and he just updated a really cool uh a tool that he's generated. So there's some good like modeling stuff and uh, kind of retopo tools and whatnot. So check that out. And if you don't know Nitro 4D, check out their, uh, their website. They do some really cool stuff. Um, let's see. Action VFX just rolled out a subscription model as well. 
Um, and Liam's saying there's five K a year to access everything. So let me pull that up right now. Effects. And oh, okay, so this is all explosions, fire, particles, water, bunch of um, kind of stock footage for visual effects. So I will put that in the notes as well. Um, So I guess we'll wrap this up for this week. If you guys have um, any other notes or questions or anything, hit us up on uh, Twitter, Instagram, or at info at mondaymeeting.org. Um, next week, we have a guest on, I believe. I'm just going to look at the calendar. Yeah, next week, we're going to have Kyle uh, Hamrick doing a – after effects presentation. So that's, that's going to be worth checking out. Um, not sure entirely what he'll be showing, but, um, he is an after effects wizard who has, he just spoke at the keyframes conference and whatnot. So he is a great resource and yes, he is the man as Tony said in the chat. So he's joined us for a bunch of these Monday meetings before. So it should be, um, Uh, it should be a, a good presentation. Layout. I'm not sure what Liam's hitting me up about, but uh, I will just tease something really quick uh, that we have in the works. There's a few of us working on it, um, but a few of us are going to start our own little conference that's going to be launching pretty soon. We'll have more information coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, but it's going to be a, an event slash conference like no other. Uh, definitely reinventing and trying to uh, reinvent the whole motion animation conference. Um, and I think it's going to be something that will be a nice uh, fresh breath of air for the industry. And you can kind of take a hint from that, but uh, we will be kind of giving out some more information about that soon. Um, and probably by NAB, there'll be all the information out. NAB is uh, the second week of April. So let's see, one, two, about three weeks or so from now, but we're really excited about um, sharing all that info. So just a little hint, hint, keep an eye out for, for that info. But um, with that being said, thank you all for joining us this week. We really love doing this and it's just a great way for us to connect outside of Slacks or any other um, kind of online platform. And it's uh, great to kind of spark these discussions with everybody. So we really appreciate people joining every week and, uh, and kind of sharing their, uh, their stories on and opinions and experiences. So much appreciated, but until next week, have a great week, kick ass, and, uh, we will see you next Monday. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thanks everyone. Bye.